Hey everyone, it's Amber Love from Vodka O'Clock Podcast here at AmberUnmasked.com. Don't forget we're labeled as an explicit website and podcast, so if you are easily offended or under 18, this is probably not the show for you. Today, my guest is Dr. Drea Letamendi, and I'm so excited to have her on because uh, she's uh, we have a mutual friends in common, so this is just sort of like a degree of separation that we're finally connecting, and I'm really excited. I'm super and- excited to be here. That's great. Um, so if people don't know you uh, and, and what we're going to talk about, which mm-hmm. is, would be kind of a surprise, but they might not because um, I, ha- I have a pretty diverse group that listens. And we're going to be talking about psychology and about feminism in pop culture and things like dual identities. And the conversation is just going to be really open. We're going to see where it leads. So but because of that, because of anything that we might talk about, I just want to give an upfront trigger warning that if we start talking about traumatic events, because I know you do PTSD work. I do. Um, that just for that sake, I just want to put like a warning disclaimer up front that um, any topics, you know, are kind of fair game here. It's a safe place and a non-judgmental place. So that's at least the goal for for the next, you know, hour or so or however long we go. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Amber. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, the seriousness of the topics we talk about. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to, to chat with you. Now, um, if people haven't seen you, I know you because you've done panels and podcasts and um, magazine articles, particularly about fictional characters in the Batman universe. Right. So this seems like a really good gateway to to talk about how the modern world is um, now copying the art in a sense that we, you know, back in, in comics, all of our crime fighters needed to have secret identities and um, masks and things like that. And now we have, um, we have real life reasons in our, in our modern times here with the internet, especially for keeping certain information completely separate and, you know, hidden. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think, I think you might um, relate to this or agree with this, that I think that technology has allowed us to sort of practice or experience dual identities or multiple identities in like different ways now. But, you know, historically, we have always had different outlets for multiple identities or practicing um, different, um, you know, I don't want to say personas, but different sides of our of our identities. Um, but certainly technology, um, you know, social media, the web, um, you know, that has allowed us to to practice and sort of play around with different identities in, in more anonymous ways. Um, I would even say in safer ways and also what what could be more confusing ways. Right. Because as we're you know, as we're representing ourselves, so sometimes so differently across different media, it can sometimes be internally, you know, psychologically confusing if if you don't sort of have I guess a very integrated stable sense of self does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah. and and you know you brought up the, the difference between having tech you know the technology that we have and right. when we didn't and yet one of the reasons that I had wanted to talk about this topic for a really long time is because novelists are very often still um, they still debate or publish uh, whether to use their names mm-hmm. 
on their own products and branding as and that's the thing now is now even somebody who's not famous in any way is still a brand instead of a person and then we get into the whole gender issue where women might use initials to sort of mask that they're women in the first place totally <laughs> and um so yeah this is definitely something that's been going on for a long time but now with the internet it's like you know, J.K. Rowling was out of it. If somebody could have afforded, like, Batman-level money for covering up an identity, then it, it would be J.K. Rowling. And her Robert Galbraith <laughs> was still totally unmasked. Right. And, uh, you know, rightfully so, she was upset about it. But, I mean, if Batman were were around, would his identity even be a secret? I, I think even in the in the narrative, in the current narrative... Um, especially in the comics, it's extremely difficult to still believe that people don't know who he is. Um, but yeah, I think it, if he were in our world, I don't know if his identity would, would be protected. That's a, that's a great question. I don't know. I think it's, it's just difficult. Well, we, we definitely saw a difference with, um, Tony Stark in, Iron Man 1, which was, you know, obviously a massive blockbuster hit for people who don't even read comics. Right. And he was just like right out in the open, hey, I'm Iron Man. And it was sort of like done so comfortably that it was almost like, no, he's just bluffing. <laughs> that was a great scene. It was it was wonderful. But again, you know, it's sort of it's uh, he has a very different relationship with technology than Bruce Wayne does, whereas um Bruce Wayne sort of keeps things secretive. It was one of those things where I, it seemed like Tony Stark was, he was, he was not particularly secretive about his projects, but he did declare his own ownership. Like he wasn't going to let any, anybody take his plans and do whatever they wanted with them. But um, right. it, it, it's interesting to see how people's relationship with technology can be really different. I was just having a very interesting Twitter conversation before we got on the line here about Facebook statuses, uh, relationship statuses. And um, it's, you know, one of my friends was just really upset because her last boyfriend wouldn't let her, wouldn't really, uh, you know, he, he was not comfortable with changing it so that it read in a relationship status with so that their names would show up on each other's profiles. Right. Right. That somehow upset his level of privacy, but to her it was insulting. And you know, it's interesting because yeah, I, I think part of me has um, an understanding of where he's coming from because when, you know, like we all have, when, when it comes to our social media, we all have some level of control and there are some, I guess, rights that we have when it comes to um, our online identities. And whether it's imagined or not, we feel very strongly about those rights. Um, you know, what people know about us, who we're dating, um, who we live with, who we're in a relationship with, who we work with, so forth. So when another person essentially has control of that or makes decisions about that information, I, I can understand somebody feeling like that right was taken away. And it's getting just more complicated by the second. Yeah, absolutely. How did that, um, how did that resolve? Was it just they decided it, to? They, you know, she respected his wishes 
And then, you know, as soon as she started dating somebody else and <laughs> her profile was allowed, you know, allowed because her new partner was, was comfortable with changing it. It was, she was, she was happy. And the fact that she voiced to me, she goes, I know this sounds dumb. I don't know why this little thing is important to me. And I said, Hey, it's important to me too. Right. Um, it's, you know, people use their technology in different ways. Um, you know, some people only want it for professional reasons and don't want an ounce of personal information out there. True. True. I don't know how Bruce Wayne would handle that. I would love to see Bruce Wayne's uh, Facebook profile. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I think he would be, I, I tend to think, um, I feel like Bruce Wayne, I feel like the whole, um, the Batman Bruce Wayne dichotomy is actually more complex. I think that there's, of course, there's Batman, the Batman persona, there's Bruce Wayne's persona, and then there's Bruce's persona. And Bruce is a bit different than Bruce Wayne. Bruce is actually very connected and emotional and thoughtful. Bruce Wayne, you know, the the businessman. Right, sort of the mask. Yeah, yeah he's, um, depending on, of course, which movie or, or which um, writer we're referring to, um, but I think there's a consistency there and that Bruce Wayne actually is a little b- bit more closed and guarded. And while he's intelligent and while he's pro-social, he still has that, he's still a little bit of, um, I don't know, this, uh, that uh, distanced kind of persona that I think is important for the job that he does and for preserving his other two identities, Batman and the real Bruce. Do you ever notice any any difference with the need for aliases or different identities when it comes to, you know, if we were looking, you know, specifically at a more, not necessarily the male-female binary genders, but are cis-hetero males less likely to need the identity, whereas the either the LGBT community or the just uh, women in general might have more need for identities, alternate identities. Yeah, that's interesting. I I would probably say it depends um, on the motivation for some of the some of the need to be more more private, more protected, um, and sometimes more secretive with a particular identity. You know. Um, so, for instance, in, in my field, a, a lot of what I do, a lot of um, a huge part of my job, actually, is to protect identities and to maintain what we call confidentiality, protect the privacy of the, the consumers and clients that I work with. So I have a, a different understanding of, you know, certainly there's uh, legal reasons and there's psychological and, and personal reasons for that. But um what that means for a lot of people is that they're able to express and and be, you know, in a place of safety and security and be able to to talk about the different identities and, and you know, sides of their of their identities with me. Um, and I have work. I have worked with folks who um, who identify um, in the LBGT community or identify as somebody who feels that out there in the real world, they cannot be themselves. They have to, um, they have to have different levels of, of, um, I don't want to say, you know, secrecy, but, but to have, you know, depending on what social media they're using or who they're talking to or what circles they're with, they have to kind of have different 
um, approaches to how open they are. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I, I feel I do feel that depending on someone's identity and the relationship of that identity with our current culture, there may be differences in openness and, you know, and, and secrecy. Well, I think it's um, no, I think it's a great answer. And uh, part of the one of the I, mean, I should say part of the fandoms or communities or whatever that I that I follow is actually the adult film industry, which in today's world is entirely different than, you know, 10, 15 years ago, because right now pretty much anybody with a webcam can be an adult, right. you know, entertainer. Um, and it's it's, you know, safer that way where, you know, you're not relying on giving yourself up to somebody else, you know, any, anything like that. But um, the Duke university porn star that everybody's talking about the last couple of weeks became a really big deal. And what's interesting is to me, she, she exhibited a really groundbreaking and feminist approach to outing herself Mm-hmm. Um, in in the media, like I guess the you know her fellow students had already discovered it, so she came out first, saying you know taking ownership of it. Right. And this, the, a similar thing had happened when I was in college, where the Playboy co-ed issue comes out. They call it the, the Spring Break issue, and somebody whose um, little bio in the magazine had said that she went to my school. Everybody thought it was me for some reason, which was very flattering. Um, <laughs> I was like, really? Thanks, guys. You want me to sign that for you? Um, but, you know, now it's, uh, you know, actors, it, being an actor of any kind, a performer of any kind, is one of those fields where it is just perfectly normal to have an alternate identity. And, you know, now it's sort of like um, you have it, but a lot less people are keeping their real legal name super top secret. It's more like, yeah, that's my name, but this is what I go by. Right. You know, like um, James Dean, whose real name is Brian, and um, Jessie Jane, you know, she talks about how she keeps her identity separate, you know, mainly because she has kids, and when she's taking them to the, you know, to school or some sort of school function or whatever, she's like, no, I'm not here as Jessie Jane, you know, I'm just here, you know, like, that's my kid. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and Stoya just... Um, she is a great columnist, and she spoke up about this Duke University issue as well. So I, it's it's something where in today's world it's almost different, like people are talking and addressing the fact that they're having alternate identities, where it's not necessarily for secret information, but just for compartmentalizing. And when you get into the psychology of something, you know, you, you were talking about there's there's Batman, there's Bruce Wayne, and then there's Bruce, the guy who talks to Alfred and, and Dick and it has a family. And right, right. <laughs> um, do you, what are the new comics doing these days with with that? Is there anything or is it still very old fashioned pulp like no a secret identity is a secret? I, I you know, that's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure um, if the approaches now are are much different than you know than in years past regarding um you know the the secret identities of superheroes i i do think i wonder if they've become more i don't know i think they're more complex now where you know some some people in um you know we'll take um some characters in the bat universe like some some people do know that bruce wayne is batman and some people don't um with recently with Barbara Gordon 
um, in the Batgirl comics, she tried to actually come out to her father. I'm not sure if you read that issue. It was a couple issues ago where she was about to take off her mask as Batgirl and, you know, Commissioner Gordon was um, was with her and she said, I'm going to reveal myself. I need you to know who I am. And he and I was very surprised. I thought this was really well written. Um, he, he said, no, he said, I don't want to know. It does not matter who you are under that mask. I need to preserve who you are with that mask. And it's interesting because her need, it's like, it's like Barbara Gordon at that moment had this, had, had this like unfulfilled need. She needed her father to know who she was because of um, everything going on with their family. And interestingly, he denied that need as her father, but as commissioner Gordon, he did something that was really good because she needed to still continue to function as, as Batgirl. And so while while Barbara Gordon did not have that need fulfilled to have that validation, to be able to have this moment with him, Batgirl continued to be this, um, you know, the character or the, the, the superhero that she needed to be. And so I really like that moment. I don't know that I see a lot of those moments or that I've seen a lot of those moments in, you know, in previous comic narratives where there's this understanding that, you know, that those, those masks and capes are, you know, there's this complex dual identity and that sometimes that person who's struggling with those identities has certain, um, you know, struggles and wrestles with, with needing to integrate them or needing to, um, you know, certain people to validate them. So I really liked that particular, that narrative in that comic. When you first described it, it sounded, I was thinking of the Commissioner Gordon side, and I'm thinking, wow, that seems like a really sweet gesture. But then when you described it as the father-daughter relationship, I was like, oh, yeah, he did just shut her down, oh, and she was trying to, to do that. Absolutely. I think part of that moment was for her, you know, to hear her father say, no, I, I, I don't want to know who you are, is, it can be, it, it, I, I read that, and I saw that as an invalidating moment for her as, as Barbara. But I understood that it was important for Batgirl. So there's that interesting dynamic. <clears throat> now, since I, um, I had mentioned that in some of your, your background, you've worked with uh, veterans and PTSD issues. Um, it's how do you feel about in the, the real world? Um, because I don't know, you know, I, I, lead, I, I read more like indie comics, so I'm not even in touch with how, how some of the mainstream stuff is handled. But um, I've been listening to, I have a really long drive, so I listen to a lot of audiobooks, mm -hmm. and I really love memoirs, and I noticed that it seems like everybody from SEAL Team 6 is like, I don't know if they're retired, so now they're revealing who they are and writing books about them, their lives or, or what happened, but it seems like there was always, it was always considered like a need for this SEAL Team to maintain complete secrecy right and now it's like but this is the real world and they have this need to talk about their lives that it's therapeutic for them and helpful for them so in your in your practice what sort of you know what sort of things come up like that um well i i actually i didn't work with anyone who was um who was on uh seal team six 
or, right, or even right. relate or even related to that. But but um But it was just seemed like a veterans issue. It is, yeah. I mean I, I think having said that, I have worked with a lot of um veterans and soldiers who who were unable to really talk about the details of their work. And I don't mean that they were, you know, so emotional or had difficulty psychologically, that they they were not able. They they were um, restricted from from speaking about those details. And so, you know, that wasn't necessarily a barrier. But what it meant is that when they shared their stories with me and when we talked about the different uh, traumatic events and, and some of the challenges and some of the, the losses they experienced, we, um, you know, we had to connect on a on a level where I didn't know a lot about what what they were really doing. Um, and yet we needed to understand and validate some of the things that they encountered and some of the actions that they engaged in. Um, I have worked with people who um, feel or who have felt um, a lot of uh, a lot of internal struggle with having injured and, and killed other people as part of their missions and who have either been tortured or engaged in some, some kind of um, torture. And again, I don't, I was never told the details about why those things took place, but we did process the details about what it meant for them to be involved in that. And, and now, you know, I think you, you brought up a really good point that um, when, when someone who has worked in that field now integrates back into what we would call, you know, our, our our society um, and even sometimes a more civilian society, they have to make that transition and develop or, or acquire some new worldviews. You know, this luckily now they're in a safer place. They're in a place where, you know, they're with their families they're with their children. They're with their social circles. So as they're integrating back into society, they also have to um, somehow understand and validate what they went through as being appropriate and adaptive and part of their job as difficult as those things were to do. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, sometimes a lot of struggle with being able to integrate, you know, the person I was, that soldier I was and, and the things that I did as part of that, you know, of that work. And now the person I am now who no longer, um, no longer engages in that kind of, um, that kind of uh, field, that that kind of uh, work where I need to be engaging in those very dangerous, threatening, um, and sometimes violent uh, types of situations. For me, one of the, the biggest stories of last year, um, the reason I specifically had mentioned SEAL Team 6, was because Kristen Beck came forward and identified as a trans woman and, you know, had been living this life as rugged warrior, you know, male for for years and, uh, you know, said, no, I am now Kristen. And we just saw the same thing with Chelsea Manning. And I I didn't know if you had any experience specifically with gender issues, because it's so it's so much different now that more people are able to talk about it and just say, oh, well, you know, I just that they're able to, to question 
you know, whether they, they're questioning themselves or questioning other people. And um, obviously there's going to be judgment because you get flooded with it. Right. <laughs> but um, is there any any situation that that you had to, to handle? Yeah. Yeah, there was um, – I recall I, I – uh, when I was working at the VA hospital, I worked with um, – a, an M to F transgender, uh, patient who had already, um, now she, she had already served. She was, um, she was considered a veteran in the sense that she had already served. And after her service with the military, um, she decided to, to transition. And when, um, when I met her, she was, um, already receiving, um, the hormone replacement therapy and was struggling with the idea of the full um, sex change. And we, we worked together for quite some time and I, she taught me so much about the culture of the military and why, um, you know, how she realized that she felt she was in the wrong body at a very young age as, as uh, which is actually very common and went through a very difficult adolescence and um, young adulthood going into the military because that was the culture of, of her family. Um, now, as a young man, she was kind of indoctrinated into that culture that, you know, you, you enlist, you, um, you get trained. Um, there, there were lots of expectations about her, you know, uh, at the time, his development into manhood. And as you can imagine, that was just incomplete. Um, uh, it was just uh, what we would consider ego dystonic, like completely different, the opposite of what um, of what she felt that she was as a person. Finally, after her after a very difficult um, service, she um, she sought treatment to help her with some of these identity struggles and, and along with depression and anxiety and, and uh, just extreme, like now, now she was transitioning. So she was experiencing a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, you know, derision and hate crimes and, and just uh, taunting, you know, any, anything across the spectrum of, of being called certain names to actually being, um, assaulted because of her decision to be herself. And, uh, I mean, I, I wish that, you know, that we had worked together longer, but she taught me a great deal about that culture and, and how brave it is for someone to make the transition while still in that culture. Um, but yeah, I, I have, um, I think that more people probably would make that decision if it weren't for that, uh, unfortunately, the military culture and um, their beliefs about femininity and masculinity. And, um, you know, it, it definitely is a struggle for some people. I had, um, it, you know, as, a, as any kind of writer, you sort of get hung up on pronouns and language and stuff. And when this sort of situation was coming out with people that were, you know, media present, uh, like Kristen Beck and Chelsea Manning, the use of pronouns became really vital, whether, no matter what point of the transition they were in. Right. Because not, not everybody chooses, like you said, to go the operation route. 
and um and you know you obviously have the respective of a client and patient to use what they want and there's still this hang up by certain media outlets or just the population in general or they you're identified based on whatever's between your legs right and um what sort of acceptance, like, do they express the acceptance or relief or something when you're finally, they meet somebody like you who <laughs> just gives them that, that bit, like a pronoun? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's not funny. It's, um, it's, I found it interesting and surprising, actually, that prior to seeing me, um, this, um, this patient, this young woman had, had been seen and, and treated and, and she worked with other providers and other mental health professionals at the hospital. And I was actually approached by a colleague, a psychiatrist who said, you know, Hey, I know you have some experience in this area. I'm, I'm struggling a lot. I, I don't know, you know, and, and he was very um, forthcoming and said, I don't know whether to use he or she, I don't have any experience in this. I feel judgmental, even though my intention is not to be judgmental. Um, can you, you know, are you, are you willing to see this patient? Because I feel like I'm not in a place where I can be as helpful and respectful and validate their experience in a way that you might be able to. And of course, my reaction was like, I, I can't, you know, I don't know. I'm, I might not. I, I have minimal experience in this area, at least at that point. That's, that was my reaction. But I said, you know, I have a minor in LBGT studies and felt that if anything, I could at least be resourceful. And if I couldn't answer some questions, I would know where to go, what resources and literature to grab for, for some help in that area. But um, I don't know how to word this so that it's not, I, when I first met um, this young woman, I could see, I could completely, I knew that she had just been through a lot, just getting accessing mental health treatment and and experiencing a lot of judgment and disappointment in in receiving um, that mental health treatment. And I could tell I may have been the first person professionally to to just be like, yeah, you know, let tell me how you want to be referred to. Um, tell me a little bit about your identity and, you know, let's talk about, I mean, I was, we were very honest with each other. I said, let's talk about your makeup and your wig. Cause you know what? Let's work on this. This is, it was not a judgment. It was, let me help you. This is the first, I want to say in the first six months of wearing, um, you know, female, um, attire and, and makeup and wigs. And I thought, Hey, girl, if there's anything I can help you with right now, on day one, it's let's pick a better shade of concealer because that one ain't working for you. And it's, you know what? And honestly, it wasn't because of any, you know, issues psychologically. It wasn't because of her mental health condition. It wasn't because of, um, you know, any judgment. It was like, hey, when I first started wearing concealer uh, at whatever age I was, I didn't pick the right one. Like, it's completely normal to not know what shade to pick, but I've had a you know a number of years now. Let's let's talk about where to get that makeup. Let's talk about how to apply it. You know what? I'm a cosplayer. Let's talk about how to take care of wigs because right now your wig's a hot mess. We need to talk about that right now. So and I think that's because you you talk to her like a person. Absolutely, absolutely, and <laughs> and you know in 
I at first felt a little hesitant because I did not want to, you know, to sound judgmental or to be um, someone who who was uh, giving negative feedback because, you know, again, she had gone through so much. But I, I said, you know, something that could help your integration and your transition and your assimilation as a female is to is your exterior, is your your appearance. And I, you know, I think there are some great things we can do to, um, you know, to make that a little bit easier. And I understand that because you've just started to do this, you may not have a lot of resources right now to work on that. And it was true. She didn't have, you know, we worked on, on getting her a transgendered mentor, someone who had been doing this for some time. You know, you, it's, you know, like, how do you apply um, eyeshadow? How do you pick the right concealer? How do you take care of wigs? I still do that. I look at, you know, I look at cosplayers and, and, you know, these like makeup things on Pinterest and I'm like, I'm trying to do exactly what that picture is. Why can't I do it? (laughs) Absolutely. It's, it's not even, you know, it's not so much an issue with the transition. It's just a female, you know, I was like, here's a female issue. And we talked about like, what is it like to be a woman? What are some great things? And then what are some things that we unfortunately aren't so, aren't so willing to, to want to be a part of? Like, guess what? Whether you're transitioning or not, sometimes you're going to be called a name. Sometimes you're going to be called a slut. Sometimes you're going to be called, um, you know, negative derogatory things. And that's not because you're transitioning. That could be because, you know, your identity in this culture is a woman is as a woman. And what, you know, what does that mean for you? Because, you know, here's what it means for me. And additionally, uh, this particular person was um, identified as an ethnic minority. And so we had some additional conversations about what does it mean to be a uh, a female of ethnic minority status and, and what comes with that, what types of labels come with that, what types of expectations come with that. And unfortunately, what types of negative social interactions might we experience? So, I mean, again, I learned quite a lot from her and, um, and it was a very positive experience, I hope for her, but also for me. Well, it's interesting that you talk about how the, regardless that it's not a that's not a, a sexual identity issue but it's just the fact that you're perceived as female the how you can be inundated with insults um and it's sort of like this rite of passage that as a female blogger to get rape threats or uh, or mine mine last week was that you know I never have to worry about rape threats like I'm so ugly and ridiculous like what? nobody would ever uh, yeah, this is this is what oh goes on gosh. in my life. So I was just like, <laughs> like, oh, you, you have no idea. And uh, but it's like, you know, for, when I read like DC women kicking ass and all the, the harassment she's been through and anybody on the Mary Sue. And right. it's, it's like this ridiculous rite of passage to go through as just a woman in the media. And yet it happens just on the streets every day. I mean, the Twitter feed for everyday sexism is sickening. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know, so here this person is like transitioning and they have no idea what they are in for. I know. I mean, and that, that was part of the conversations that we had was, 
and it was it was really interesting her beliefs about womanhood her her values and her um you know the constructs she held about femaleness were were positive they were very sexual they were um you know and and not i don't say that in a bad way but she was she wanted to wear the short skirts and the high heels and 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 you know the long wigs and and we championed those things you know those are those are not um those aren't negative characteristics of women but her construct of womanhood was was kind of superficial and 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 you know always pointed toward the you know the strong sexual and proud woman and we had to have conversations about because she would inevitably she was getting some some you know she would get the name calls and the taunting and and we had to process some of that you know while you can be a strong confident sexy woman unfortunately in this culture that also means you're going to be called a slut you're going to be you know you're going to get rape jokes you know thrown at you you're you know what are these other things that that comes with and and what do we do with that you know how do we they're not going to go away unfortunately so we have to process and understand them and not let them not let those threats and um you know the those assaults we you know we have to somehow be able to preserve our sense of self and not turn back to uh i guess not fall back on the idea that well then i can't be sexy i can't be loud i can't be i can't be bossy um right you know the whole victim blaming thing that we go through right right um it's you know it's a conversation that like you said whether she was transgendered or not, it's a conversation that we had to have. Yeah, I feel like this is the sort of thing that a parent now has to go through with raising a daughter, you know, that the, you have to, this checklist of conversations to have with your child through puberty. And one of them is, just so you know, you might be called these things or, or right. you know, and it's just so sad. There's like... You know, the last thing you want to do with an 11 or 12 year old girl is like have that sort of just it's like pole vaulting them into womanhood, you know, instead of having this adolescence anymore. It's like, nope, boom, here you go. Um, And I had been on on Twitter and had asked people if they knew of any comic book characters that had secret identities of a different gender than what they were if they you know other than shapeshifters because we see characters like mystique who you know can change at will which is entirely different and the the one that came up was the very first case identified was madam faith fatal and uh in wikipedia it says is notable for being a male superhero who dressed up as an elderly woman oh and, interesting and as such is the first cross-dressing hero and um then it comes up later that Red Tornado uh, was the first cross-dressing heroine. And when I had asked Twitter this, it was, it was really cool to see today's creators chime in and go, you why aren't, why isn't this happening? Why hasn't this happened like on a regular basis? It's just, you know, it's something that sort of like happened in like the Looney Tunes when Bugs Bunny would be in drag kind of days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't, and, you don't see a lot, you don't see a lot of, um, sort of uh, cross-gendered and, and, you know, if there, if we think about the different um, manifestations of the, the personas and, and how, how different they can be, 
um, why not? You know, why isn't this happening more? Yeah, especially, you know, when I think about the, the superhero genre and you're going through so much effort to alter your identity, to go fight crime, or if you're the villain, you know, to go wreak havoc. Um, it, it's taking this monumental amount of time, energy, money, and resources to have this alternate identity anyway. So why wouldn't you really try to throw them off base and be a different gender? Right. Um, I think if you're a villain, that's probably the way to go. <laughs> I No, that makes sense to me. Um, it's interesting that you brought up Mystique, because recently I was rewatching X-Men First Class, and it's, I don't know, like, I was struggling with, I was, I was talking with, um, with my, uh, my boyfriend and, and uh, actually my podcast co-host, Brian, and we were, he was like, why does she choose, like, have you seen the movie, like, Jennifer Lawrence is, is the young mystique when she's, right. you know, and, and we were struggling with this idea, like, she gets to choose she, her normal sense, her normal self, her human, you know, persona is she chooses Jennifer Lawrence. At least right. that's, that's the, that's, right. That's kind of what so, we're Which is, she, she was sort of like, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 something blonde, you know, right. very, very quintessentially American looking. Yes. So I get that. But then later in the film, she, she uh, transforms into Rebecca Romaine Stamos or Rebecca right. Romaine. Maybe now she's Rebecca Romaine. I don't know. I think so. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> and so, which I loved that scene. I thought that was a great scene. I know. And I was like, oh, okay. And Brian was like, I don't understand. And he asked a very good question. He's like, why doesn't, why doesn't she just choose Rebecca Romaine? Oh, no, no, no. He said, sorry. He said, why doesn't she just continue to choose Jennifer Lawrence? And I'm, and he's like, you know, I know in, in the previous movies, that's the actress, right? That, that they chose. But if you were Mystique, like, wouldn't you just choose Jennifer Lawrence? She can't age. She doesn't age. So why does she eventually become Rebecca Romain? And I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you. Sometimes it doesn't always work in your favor to be a young, a young woman. Sometimes, exactly. sometimes it works better or you're more influential if you're an older, still very pretty, still hot, but if you're an older um, more elegant woman than a young, you know, a younger version of that. And it was interesting that that brought up issues of, you know, the intersection of gender and age and power. And if you could be somebody, if you were a woman uh, who naturally looked like Mystique and you could choose whatever female, actually, or male, but she, you know, she's a female as Mystique, she's a female. If you could choose whatever female appearance you could why you would choose certain you know certain appearances and I was like you know what I totally understand why she would choose Rebecca Romaine later in life if that's you know what she wanted to do um so it was an interesting conversation and and that was within her control and if you think about a character like Billy Batson, it was not in his control yeah. when he would yell Shazam and be transformed into Captain Marvel or whatever they were calling him. Um, he was suddenly this full grown Superman of a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, but that's really like an eight year old little boy. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. But it was, that was out of his control. It was one of those things where in order to, 
uh, enact the powers, they they had to age him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that either, that, you know, obviously with superheroes, size matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. you got to beefy and muscular or lean and athletic. Yeah. yeah. But also things, you know, in, a, in addition to gender, age and um, and I think, you know, ethnic. Perpetually 30. You're never like, you're just <laughs> perpetually 30. Right. That seems to be the, the most resilient uh, age is 30. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting how, um, how it's, there's all these different intersections of, of, you know, of that, those characteristics and, and how they play together. And, you know, I would like to see more characters that, that are, that choose to be an ethnic minority character or that, you know, or frankly, that are just happen to be an ethnic minority character. And that's really not part of, of, you know, huge integral part of their narrative. That's uh, what I would like to see. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I, all I saw were headlines. Now, where where um, maybe you have more information on this? Uh, it's become the creator's role or the producer slash publisher's role sometimes to change the ethnicity of a character, and the fans go berserk or the gender of a character in the fans go berserk because back when I was reading green Hornet, there were like five green Hornet titles and one of them, Cato was a, a female. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember and that. She had a great story. It's not that it was a bad character. It was a great character and everything, but it bugged me. I'm like, why, why did they do this? Like, why didn't they just create a new character? Right. Um, because it's always going to be green Hornet and Cato, just like, um, you know, Batman and Robin or, you know, like you, there's there's sort of this partnership that that people expect. And then the Fantastic Four reboot was being discussed as far as Hollywood goes. And they were going to have one sibling African-American and then one, you know, Caucasian and blonde. Mm-hmm. So I don't like I said, there was some sort of recent headline where that they might. I don't know. Are they not doing that now? I don't, like, I, I just think it's. I don't know if it's um, when there's the case of producers or publishers trying to finally show some diversity. There's just there's still backlash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, I think it's tough because you know there there. I don't think I'm alone when I say yeah. I would like to see more um, more characters that look like me. I would like to see more characters that are of ethnic minority status, um, but. I don't know how I feel, you know, when, when you are aware, you feel, you have the sense that a character was, um, you know, that, that their, that their, uh, ethnicity or race was changed to meet that some quota or some diversity mandate. Like it just feels weird. It it feels forced. And it's, that's not what we mean when we ask for diversity. So, you know, I agree with you that sometimes it can feel, um, really contrived and forced when when you have a female character uh, who traditionally is male or an ethnic minority character who traditionally is Caucasian. Um, I think there are certainly ways that that can happen. It, like you said, with new characters or with the same character um, who, you know, who is there's a different version or a new person and takes on takes over the role, you know, takes on the cape or the, the cowl. Right. 
Right, like Miles Morales. Yeah. Like, they invented a new character. Yeah. First to be Spider-Man in, that, in the Ultimate Universe. And it was like, to me, that made sense. Right, right. But it is a tricky, it, it's tricky because while, you know, I, I feel as though um, publishers and writers, you know, do want, do want to speak to that diversity, but it's, it's very difficult, um, I think, to, to represent that in a way that seems fair and seems creative. And, you know, seems like there's uh, a lot of um, support behind it. So, um, you know, I I don't know. I don't know that there's the best way to do that. I don't. Yeah, I don't know either. There's got to be something that that people can be comfortable with. And I think you're right. I think it all has to do with whether or not it's important. Like if if they introduced Sue Storm, the invisible woman, as, you know, a Hispanic woman with really smoking curves or something i that'd be great like if like it's it's just one of those things where um i think it's more upsetting when there's decades of stuff to pick apart and at this point you know we know that susan storm is the sister to johnny storm and it's like okay but if she's gonna look this way what's the story then and instead of waiting to see people got upset right absolutely um, and, you know, it's it's just there's a lot of story that could be worked in that has never been worked in before. And it takes sometimes it just takes great writers because um, Grant Morrison, love him or not, um, he's an encyclopedia of Batman information. Right. Right. <laughs> and he's the type of person that knows that there was one nugget of something from, you know, 1961 that could be pulled into continuity today and alter something like that and have it make perfect sense. Like, right. well, no, I'm going to perfectly explain to you why the penguin is, is a woman now. Right. Or something, you know, like he's like, he would be the one to be able to pull that off. Right. <laughs> and it, it's just, um, it takes, I think it just takes a really well-constructed story. Like you said, otherwise it's just asking for disaster. And then all the fans would be like, see, we were right. Um, but the, th- but thinking about, uh, changing gender and and changing ethnicity and stuff th- these are big issues in cosplay and there's a lot of uh, great african american cosplayers um who have to defend themselves to dress up as non-black characters and yeah. this, this seems sad it's you know when when somebody wants to dress up as Batgirl or dress up as Wonder Woman and, you know, a Sailor Scout. There's a really great blog where the squirrel was dressed as a Sailor Scout. And she's like, why is my color an issue? It's a costume and I'm having fun. Mm-hmm. And these are, it's like, these are the things that until it's, you know, maybe pointed out, you might not even know that these are issues when you're getting into cosplay. Yeah. It's, I think, you know, I have very strong feelings about that because, um, I, you know, I'm a cosplayer and I feel as though I don't have as many, naturally, I don't have as many choices. Like if we were going to think about all the characters that, um, that I could cosplay, um, one might say that I don't have as many choices as, um, you know, maybe a Caucasian cosplayer because, um, how many, you know, how many, uh, I I I was gonna say you have to be ethnically correct, right? Like, or, right. Or, I was, or 
you know, I don't know, spectrally gray. <laughs> like, you, like your skin is slightly brown, therefore you can be jasmine. <laughs> right. And and I say that because um, I I don't I don't believe I don't believe that I'm restricted to just the ethnic minority, um, or even even you know more limited to only the Latina slash Asian characters because I'm a quarter Asian and um, Hispanic. So that makes like, I don't believe like, is there ever going to be a character that is Asian and Latina and female? And like, I don't think so. So we haven't found one yet. so. (laughs) So, so part of me, you know, and again, that goes back to like who I believe I am, like what my identity is and, and, um, and my, you know, no, I don't think that there should be a character in the Bat universe that represents, you know, my culture and my ethnicity and my race and, you know, my gender. I don't think it works that way. But I will say that when I consider, you know, what are all the possible um, characters that I could embody because, you know, based on, let's say, let's just stick to comics. Like, what are all the characters I could embody and and cosplay reasonably that if I'm in that, if I'm in their clothes, if I'm in their outfit, in their costume, somebody would recognize me because part of cosplay is the recognition of someone seeing you as that character. It's extremely important. That's very true. Yeah, so, that's very, very true. So, um, you know, somebody would say, oh, well, you look like Renee Montoya because that's what you look like. Right. Um, who I've cosplayed. And unless I'm with Commissioner Gordon, um, no one knows who I'm cosplaying because <laughs> oh, I'm just yeah. in like, a, I'm carrying a gun. Right, I'm just yeah. in a pantsuit, you know, like it's helpful to have uh, a very good commissioner Gordon cosplayer with me when I, when I cosplay her. But, but so it's, it's a difficult thing because I'm not saying, you know, part of me is saying, yes, I look for characters that I could reasonably embody. And I look for characters that, that are meaningful to me. And there are a handful of characters that, that I do cosplay that I feel um, that I have that transformation, that I feel like I can pull it off and I feel like people recognize, like Renee Montoya, like Huntress, you know, um, I feel like like those are characters that I have successfully cosplayed and felt very good about. On the other hand, I don't feel limited. It's not as if I'm, you know, I shouldn't feel like I'm not allowed to cosplay Sailor Moon or um, Princess Leia or, you know, Batgirl for that matter. I shouldn't feel you know, I should be able to to cosplay those those characters as well. But as you pointed out, then I have to I have to be able to deal with some of the responses I'm going to get once I get onto the con floor. Right. What's going to happen, whether I like it or not, if pictures are taken and posted, I'm going to be the Latina Batgirl or the Hispanic Princess Leia. I don't get to be Princess Leia. That's not a choice I have. So I feel, you know, um, if we're talking about the same Sailor Moon cosplayer, I understand, I understand the, the, um, you know, the emotional response to that, which is, you know, I wanted to choose this character because I connect with that character. I'm not a, a black version of that character. I'm not a Hispanic version of that character. Um, that's, you know, because I'm wearing that costume, um, I'm connecting with this particular character I'm becoming this character and in a way society doesn't always let me transform fully if that makes sense that makes perfect sense and um one of the one of the reasons that I've um blogged about the 
gender bending character cosplay characters is because I I'm one of those viewers where um sometimes it's not obvious to me based on the costume or the person are you being like Batman or you know maybe Batman's a bad character because has the word man in it but um you know are you being this character if it were written as a female or are you like in drag you know like these are things that are not necessarily obvious based on certain costumes um yeah. you know if they if they aren't sexualized like um i i know that there's the uh that really amazingly uh just so well crafted group uh that that does like justice league and they gender swap the whole thing like tallest silver and and those guys um steven meisner does like power power boy i think he calls himself mm-hmm. you know so he's like a really sexualized male version of power girl and but he's not dressed as power girl like he's literally a reinvented character and um in a an equally objectifying outfit but a male version <laughs> um, right. so so it's sort of like i have i have this like i guess because i haven't gone through it i i get hung up on it like are you a male version of this or are you in drag you know yeah i I think um, I actually think there are there are two types of gender swapping um, when it comes to to cosplay. I think there's crossplay, um, and then there's um, the gender bending. the gender bending. I want to I want right. I, I can't even remember. It's not. Is it rule? Oh, gosh, it's rule. Is it sixty three or thirty three? I think it's sixty three. I think it's rule. Okay, <laughs> um, and. You know, I think you're right. There's there's a difference between somebody who um, who is wearing, you know, putting on the costume, the attire, the clothing of the opposite of a character of the opposite gender. And they, you know, like what's between their legs, what's between the cosplayer's legs isn't as important as, you know, they're, they're embodying everything about that character, their maleness uh, or femaleness, you know, the the costume itself, like they are trying to become that character as the character um, is in that fictional world. Um, And that, you know, as you've seen, that can be done really well. It can be really, you know, we know that the person beneath the costume is of a different gender, but they are, they are putting on, they are the part of that cross play is to be, um, is to, is to embody the gender of that other character. Right. Whereas um, a different type of, of swap of gender swapping would be to have a female version of that character. So um, there was, I want to say not last year, but the year before a bunch of us did um, like a gender swapping um, that universe villains uh, group. And so I was a female Riddler. And so, you know, I had a mini skirt that was, that was green and a, you know, blazer that was green and a cute hat and, you know, I wore green high heels. You know, that's, that's the, that would be the female version of the Riddler. Um, That's very different than if I were to, you know, wear a a wig uh, that looked like uh, a male, you know, wig and put on the suit and, and do the traditional um, 
Riddler or or even worse that onesie then I don't I don't know it's very hard to pull out that onesie <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it would be hard to be um you know in a female body and do <laughs> do a, a onesie and, and try to pull off being a male Riddler <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like, I could never convincingly pull off a male character. I'm like, I have had boobs since I was 11. <laughs> it's just, it would take, like, a Hollywood team of artists <laughs> to do that. Yeah, but, but see, I mean, but I, I like that we have, you know, you would have, you have the option to do it, and you would still be able to embody some part, like, some co- many components of whatever character you chose and but you know your your body would be there so that would be part of and that's part of the cosplay too where people you know there's a lot of contention about what cosplay is about and sometimes you don't have to absolutely represent and and look like that character exactly where you know some people really champion that and you know there's contests and we see online a lot of celebration of people that look exactly like that character but you know remember there's other parts of that transformation that are important and maybe more internal more psychological like you know feeling empowered feeling strong feeling um confident feeling like other people look up to you those are the internal transformations that people tend to forget that is part of the cosplay experience. I know. I'm really glad that you said that because um, I know we're, you know, we've got a few more questions to cover. And um, but one of the things that I wanted to bring up was when you're in costume, first of all, it's if if it's not something that's common, like in your family or whatever like that, you have to explain how you are not psychotic for doing this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have those moments where, like, kids will come up to you and they truly believe that you're Wonder Woman or, you know, or you're the Riddler or you're Batman, whatever. And um, so for those moments, you you have to then do the mental component as well. Like I'm going to sell this. Like I'm go- you know, I've signed autographs as Wonder Woman like thousands of times. It's great. Right. Um, and, and it wasn't something that I was really prepared for. I was like, Oh, I'm like, I'm just a person in spandex. But, you know, <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't know that that was coming. That's part of the deal. You have to sign autographs. Yeah. yeah. Like, wow, this is really cool. Well, you know, and some people, you know, it's funny because uh, there's a spectrum of how much you embody that character. Now, some people, I really don't think that I do, except for the kids. Yeah. You know, I just, I'm like, no, I don't do the play part. You're like, I don't, you know. Right. Right. Are you speaking the way that that character would speak? Are you do put on the persona? And it's funny, you know, some people really get into the character and don't break character until they're, you know, they're out, out of the costume. Um, some, some people, uh, I, I think I'm toward the other spectrum where I don't try to do the voice or, you know, it's only when posing for pictures maybe that I'll try to, you know, try at least to embody that personality of that character. But, you know, I'll walk around and I'll talk like myself and I'll, right. I'll still be myself, but I happen to, to be in this costume. And, um, I ran this study with um, with another psychologist. Her name is Dr. Robin Rosenberg, and we were really interested in how cosplayers um, experienced the cosplay, um, you know, transition and, and the the um, some of the internal motivations for cosplay, as well as some psychological aspects and features of cosplayers. Because you're right, 
once you identify as a cosplayer, people who are not cosplayers will uh, leap to judgments about your psychological state. So we ran this study to ask about um, different motivations for cosplay as well as some psychological characteristics of cosplay. And um, what we found, uh, I presented this data at Geek Girl Con last October, uh, what we found is that there are, based on, you know, the thousand or so cosplayers that responded to our survey, there are not, um, we couldn't really find any differences psychologically among the group or between that group and the larger, larger society in that when we asked about things like external, uh, extroversion and introversion, it's not as if, uh, cosplayers have this, um, you know, this different feature that people who are not cosplayers have. Um, in addition, these cosplayers that we talked to have all sorts of different types of occupations, educational status, creative, um, you know, talents. Like, basically, we came out of the, this study feeling like, you know what, we can't really say anything about cosplayers, psychologically speaking, that's different than people who are not cosplayers. Which I found to be, I was very proud of that finding. I was like, that's right. That's great. I was all out myself. I was one of those. Uh, oh, excellent people that I answered. Yeah, because I, it's really cool when I, whenever that sort of the the retweets and the sharing starts going around about, oh, my friend is doing or you know the their thesis on this. Can you you know? It was like, yeah, sure. And um, and uh, yeah, I remember when you were doing that and you were asking about um, like people's professions and stuff. And and a lot of times, uh like people who do uh, video podcasts and stuff will go through Comic-Con and, and talk to cosplayers and, and they'll see if they can get any of that information out. And, you know, one guy will be a doctor and one guy will be a lawyer and somebody else is actually a police officer. And, um, you know, it, some people won't say because they just don't want anybody to know. <laughs> and another people are completely fine. Like, yep, I'm a corporate lawyer. <laughs> I dress up as Superman. <laughs> Yeah, this, I'm, I appreciate that you participated because the survey was a way to capture, I think, what we know anecdotally maybe about cosplayers, if you are a cosplayer, but it was a way to support that idea of equality and that idea um, to kind of destigmatize the, the, you know, the hobby or, or the, um, the profession, too, of being a cosplayer. And, um, and some people, because this survey, as you know, was anonymous, we were hoping that some people would be very honest about their backgrounds and their educational level and so forth so that we could really demonstrate and support, you know, the, the, um, the theory that cosplayers don't necessarily have a fundamental difference in their, in their psychological makeup, nor are they just, you know, creative folks who are already in the industry or who are, um, who are artists of some type, as you mentioned, doctors, lawyers, you know, psychologists, we're, we're all cosplayers. Yeah. And it's, um, it's almost like some oh, some people are getting upset because it's become so popular and mainstream and then there's TV shows and whatnot. And it's like, uh, whatever, you know, everybody's got their, their limit. Um, but there's, there's also this contingent of people and it's a very small population as far as the costuming world goes that take it to a whole different level that call themselves real life superheroes. And they, actually go out and like patrol their neighborhoods in costume. And to me, that's sort of like, well, unless you actually have law enforcement training, I think you might be in danger. Yeah. Um, 
Um, but I know other people do it to not quite that physical extreme. They will go out and like maybe deliver food to homeless people while they're dressed up in costume. Um, I do charity work in costume, but I specifically, you know, it's, it's set up that way. Like I'm not patrolling my streets or something. Um, so it's, now, have these people that get that involved with creating their own unique identities and dressing up and putting on Kevlar and like, are what's the psychology there that they've they've seen a flaw in their world and they're literally copying the comic books? I, you know, I've I've thought about this before because um, it almost takes it to the next level, right? That they're they're either embodying a, an existing character or they're creating a character very much like Batman. Like some of these guys, right. like you see, um, they're both women and men, but the ones I've seen are men. And like, there's this one dude where I'm like, come on, how are you not ripping off Batman right now? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, but I don't know when I've, when I've thought about, and I've, I've, I've actually never spoken with um, someone who considers themselves a real life superhero. So I'm, this is a, this is conjecture, but from what I see, there's this genuine, there's, there seems to be this authentic interest and motivation to be pro-social and want to help society and help um, underserved people. And I, I, I do think that because, as you mentioned, there, there is, there are some risks involved with this and um, you could get into some trouble. You could be hurt. I, I think that people that engage in this might have some personality traits that that are similar to folks who are sort of thrill seekers, you know, like there's, there's a personality trait. We all have some level of like uh thrill seeking in us. My, oh, there's the, the adrenaline that they're after. Yes. Yeah. Mine is very low. Like I won't go on a roller coaster. So okay. I, <laughs> I have very low um, thrill seeking, uh, the low thrill seeking um, trait, but, some people have a very high level of that trait and find that that's one way that they can kind of experience, like you said, that adrenaline and, um, you know, have some of that risk taking uh, lifestyle and do something where they feel they're making a difference. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not saying that I advocate it, but I'm not, I'm also not sure if it's necessarily quite a bad thing unless it's harming someone else or it's harming themselves. Right. That's, I'm sort of in the same boat. Like I just, I, it's more worry and concern. Um, and I'm sure there's some, there's possibly like liability issues as well. Um, now, um, we've been talking about cosplay and the mental health of characters and something that, I've read a couple articles on and listened to, like, I think it was on NPR or somebody did an episode about mental health and creators that, that there's, you know, some people believe that there's an absolute correlation between mental illness and an openness to creativity. And I, I actually wanted to ask if you had any sort of experience with that at this point, because I know like you, you you're able to tackle creative things like cosplay. And I didn't know if you ever looked at the side of the creators themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't have. I I actually don't have either anecdotal or or actual literature that I could cite that shows this relationship between uh, any types of mental illness and 
and creativity. Um, I do think, you know, certainly there are, there are types of people that, that have the ability to, to access creativity in certain ways and have focus and, um, and there, there may be types of mental illnesses that facilitate the ability to produce really amazing work. As you know, I, I tend to, you know, part of what my personal mission is, is to broaden the public knowledge about mental health and to reduce the stigma associated with mental health and to understand that, like, a lot of us are living with mental health problems and illnesses. And so my my belief, based on what I've seen, is that mental illness is so prevalent, it's everywhere to the degree that, like, any type of occupation is you know, experiences the the impact of mental health, whether it facilitates work or is a detriment to their work. So I know that's a very general response to that, but I, I guess just based on where I'm coming from and what I've seen generally, uh, there's nothing, it's almost like there's nothing, uh, how do I put this? There's not a specialness about the, the creative occupation that mental illness is sort of very fitting for that. Mental illness is prevalent across all occupations and so like it, it just really depends on uh on how it either hinders or, or can help i think that's a great answer because it's something that i've seen as well i used to work in municipal government and most of the police force was on antidepressants mm, interesting um and you know when you look at something at with that risk and responsibility level it's like okay well would i rather have officers who are not being treated or would i rather have them you know in treatment and at you know admitting it or something like that you know it's just right. um it is it's across the board it's everywhere it's you know it's parents who stay at home with their kids it's parents who go to an office it's toll booth workers it's you know could be anywhere mm-hmm. but um it's it's something that, for you know, I I can't remember if it was on Psychology Today or where it was, but I really had started like clicking through this spider web of links to, to because there was information somehow connecting it that it that it made people more creative, and and part of that is that there's um, once in a while things like BuzzFeed or whatever will put up you know five famous writers who had mental illnesses right. and they'll have like you know Ernest Hemingway and Sylvia Plath and um, Dorothy Parker and whatever you know it's like um, but like you said, it's like, okay, well, are you going to talk about five dentists in history? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, which five dentists had bipolar disorder? That's very true. Um, you know, and, and I also, uh, it's, it, I don't want to minimize the idea, too, that sometimes mental illness can really um, impact work in a negative way. Certainly, bipolar disorder and depression as well as anxiety disorders can be incredibly inca- incapacitating for people who are struggling to be successful in whatever field that they're in. So, um, you know, so again, it, it's very, very hard to sort of pinpoint a correlation or, or some kind of um, trend uh, when all of these different types of um, impairments are, are, you know, actually very common. And um, when we see success, I, I think what for me, the story that's coming out of this that that I like is that, you know, when we see really successful, talented and resilient, creative people who are a bit more high profile, you know, when we see that they're they've experienced or struggled with mental illness, it's um, 
it reminds us that you can still have, um, you know, mental health um, impairments or disorders and, and be able to um, to be successful and to be able to inspire other people who might be struggling. So those are the stories that I like to see. I think Stephen Fry is a really phenomenal example of that. Yeah. Um, he's very open about his own issues and he's extremely supportive. So he's the sort of person that, like you said, a high profile person, media celebrity. Um, he's, you know, he's remarkable to admit his lowest moments. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, so it's, if, if people are listening and they, they were thinking, well, well, who could I possibly relate to? That's, you know, not a dead famous writer or something, you know. Um, there are people like Stephen Fry today who are, who are being more open about that. Um, so one of the things that we talked about earlier was Barbara Gordon and her identity as Batgirl, and at this point, this is not a spoiler because the story is 20 years old or whatever, um, that she was she was shot. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of psychological trauma there. And I don't know. I, I know that you were um, brought in by Gail Simone to work on real mental health issues of a fictional character. Right. So... Um, you're going to be giving lectures about this soon um, for, for this year and everything. It, was that a challenge to talk about a fictional character or were you just giving, um, giving Gail real life information like we've been doing today? I was giving her a lot of real life information because um, certainly she has, um, she has amazing skill and talent in creating depthful, you know, characters and um, she she had some questions for me about um, about realistic um, interpersonal relationships between a patient and a psychologist, as well as details about, you know, what would that, what would the environment look like? What would the office look like? What kinds of questions would be asked? How would they, you know, what, what dialogue would, would be realistic here? And, um, and so we, you know, I, I did my best to try to offer some real life examples of, um, you know, de-identified examples of patients who have experienced something similar to Barbara Gordon, as you mentioned, both a, a physical and psychological injury and what that recovery might look like and how um, how that particular client or patient would struggle with, you know, with transitioning to to physical as well as emotional, um, you know, strength and I'm, I'm thinking about the identities that we talked about before that once you experience that kind of trauma again physically and emotionally you're not the same person and so we talked a bit about what her worldview would be like now and how her psychologist would help her to understand the impact that that event had on her and how that event would continue to influence her interpersonal relationships and especially her, um, you know, her ability to be Batgirl again. And in that first issue, uh, I want to say it was, oh, this is hard to remember, 20, when was the New 52? 2011? The spring? It's oh, gosh. 2011, I can't quite remember. Um, when that first issue came out, we did see, now that was prior to, to Gail and I working together, but 
in that first issue, we did see uh, Batgirl struggling with this, you know, new villain, the mirror. And she, um, she started to have flashbacks about her trauma with the Joker and having been shot. And so um, before I even consulted with Gail, she had already written in this, um, this incredibly insightful and complex uh, uh, you know, characteristic in Barbara Gordon that she was still struggling with her past trauma and experiencing flashbacks and nightmares and difficulty putting it to rest. And so moving forward, uh, issues, issues 16 through 20, she's, um, we see her, they're also, they're also flashbacks. We see her interact with her psychologist and, and to have some sessions with her while she's still in her wheelchair because she's still recovering from the injury. And we kind of see her develop strength again and to make meaning of this really horrific thing that happened to her. I don't know, um, because I, I haven't been reading the, the Batgirl title. Um, there was at some point amongst the fans, some sort of buzz about the way the original, the killing joke book was perhaps edited or perhaps how, um, how the art was analyzed, whether or not Barbara Gordon had been sexually assaulted. And when I had originally read the book years ago, I thought that she was, or at least if she had not been assaulted via penetration, that she was at least sexually humiliated because she had been stripped naked as well. Um, and there were photos taken of her in, right. There as, were photos. So there's, yeah. yeah. So, um, is this something that has carried over into the new um, or you know modern continuity that Gail's working on? Because now you're not only dealing with a gunshot wound, but you're dealing with a sexual assault victim. Yeah. Um, that is the way that I think you and I have similar interpretations of the killing joke. That is the way that I understand that particular assault. Um, and so when I think about that traumatic event, I think about the physical injury, um, the, I mean, the, the, the loss of her ability to use her legs, that being a traumatic experience and, um, and the sexual assault, as well as the exploitation, the humiliation, the shame, all the stuff that happened, um, perhaps by those photographs being used, uh, later. So I do see those all as being part of this, this traumatic event in, in the new 52 in, in this, um, this particular incarnation of, of Barbara Gordon and Batgirl, there's a lot of reference to, and, um, I, I guess, um, it, it's very prominent that she did experience a trauma. It's not, it's not directly stated even like what, what happened. We, we do see flashbacks of the Joker shooting her actually in the first issue of Batgirl, uh, written by Gail Simone, but we don't see much more uh, related to that, you know, the, the details of that incident. So interestingly, it's not explicitly described as a sexual assault, but it doesn't, I, I think we can still have that interpretation and the story still works. Um, when it comes to her therapy and when it comes to her relationship with her therapist, there are a lot of, there's, there is a lot of discussion about trust about being able to, you know, to uh, work again as Batgirl and not be a changed person. There's a lot of discussion about 
the feelings one has when they encounter um, a trigger, you know, a villain that, that reminds her of the Joker or even the Joker who she encounters in, in issues uh, uh, later, uh, 16 through 20, when the Joker is essentially harassing um, all of the Bat family members um, in death of the family. So, so while it's not directly discussed, I, I think there it, it still can be implied, and I still think that the way that we read the story, um, it certainly has a place there because she has been impacted in, in a certain way. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that it's not something that's talked about. I don't know that I, you're the first person to actually ask me about that, and I I agree with you about what what actually happened to her probably was sexual in nature. Yeah, I was, I was surprised that it, um, it didn't seem to be coming from the creators, uh, you know, at all. Like there was no big article on, you know, iFanboy or Newsarama or right. <laughs> anything right. really, really talking about this. It was just something that, the, that Twitter opened up a, a stream of discussion about. Um, and it was just because somebody was, analyzing the original artwork and then I, I, at some point they remastered it I think they they um, maybe tweaked some coloring and, and inking or something on the book um, and that so it was being analyzed further from an artistic point of view about um, because it's a graphic book I mean it's right. very very graphic it's not you know something for all ages at all it's not um, it's, it's not just an easy Batman story right and, and I wouldn't and I don't know for sure that um I don't know exactly what happened to Commissioner Gordon, who who we also see in a state of. We also seen. Yeah, I was going to say we also see him. Yeah, naked to to a point. Um, he, the, he has a particular like this resonant look in his eyes of horror. He's yeah. just frozen there. Um, and part of that is when he's then shown these pictures of his own daughter. Yeah. Um, so now what, these. So I'm I'm curious. What did um, were these primarily readers and fans? as well as creators, like what, what did people, what, what were their interpretations? What was the conclusion there? It seemed really split. Hmm. Um, how, and, and maybe again, it's because I think what everybody agreed was, was the fact that clothes were removed. It makes it sexual in nature, like you said. So in that sense, everybody agreed, but I think there was sort of a split as to whether or not there, there was any physical violation of, you know how our how our Republicans like to call real rape. You know, yeah, um, yeah. They, those sorts of delineations versus you know you you said a great word. You said ex, exploitation, which was you know true. Like people are stripped of their clothing and um, photos being taken and and, and then shared. You know, right. shared shared with the people that you know you never you know want to see you in that in that condition. Um, so I think everybody agreed that that to a point there was some sort of sexual violation. I think it's just interpretive, right? You know, as to what went on off panel, and a lot of great stuff happens off panel in comics. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it, it, sometimes as I, in fact, it was wasn't at the end of the Killing Joke. People wondered, you know, did Batman kill the Joker at the end? Did he finally snap? And right. I I assumed he did. You know, I thought that that was going to be a, an isolated story and there was never going to be anything further to, to talk about this particular chapter. I thought it was like just a very 
contained Batman's story. And to me, it was like, okay, you know, because that's always the thing. Like, why didn't he just kill a Joker? Right. Well, to me, I, I thought that he had finally, like, those were the things that pushed him over the edge and he finally did it. But that's, but that was only me. <laughs> I'm probably in the minority on that one. <laughs> That's funny. I I didn't think that he did kill him at the end, but uh, I do remember that also being a huge debate recently. Yeah. Um. So these are the sorts of things that you're going to be ca- talking about in um, different panels coming up for your schedule this year. Um. Because you said isn't one of them specifically about Barbara Gordon? Yeah. Yeah. So um, WonderCon is coming up next month. It's uh. I believe it's April 18th through the 20th. And uh, one of the panels um, that I'm on is with Gail Simone. And it's, it will be discussing, um, you know, the, the transformation that um, that Barbara Gordon experiences in the New 52, as well as some of the psychological, um, there's some of the psychological themes that are relevant to her as a superhero, as well as, you know, a person um, who has dealt with psychological and physical injuries. So I'm, I'm really excited to be able to talk about some, you know, things that we talked about today, like the real world psychology of this fictional narrative. And um, so that's, that's WonderCon. Do you have anything already slated for the rest of the year or coming back to New York Comic Con or San Diego? Um, that is a great question. I would, I haven't, I think last, so last year I skipped New York Comic Con because I headed to Geek Girl Con, which is just a couple weeks before. I wasn't able to swing both. So this year I would like to return to New York Comic Con, although I'm not sure if I'll be able to make it. Um, Certainly, I will be at um, San Diego Comic Con this year, which is, of course, in July. And um, who knows? We'll see see about other appearances and events. Um, This is absolutely something that I like talking about and as I mentioned before, you know, any opportunity to talk about fictional narratives and bringing in real psycho- psychology um, is something that's near and dear to my heart. So I, I try to do that as much as possible. And people can obviously follow your calendar updates and things at underthemaskonline.com. Where you yeah, have, right. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And recently in the last couple of months, um, I've, uh, I've launched a, a podcast, um, with my co-host Brian Ward and we are, um, what, what our show is about is the psychology of Batman, the animated series. And what we do is, um, we feature in each of our episodes, we feature one episode of the animated series. We're going actually in order of production and I noticed that. I was like, oh, I thought she was just talking about Gotham in general. And then I was like, oh, wait, I know these titles. These are episodes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're actual. We deconstruct each episode of Batman the Animated Series. And we talk about the psychology of the villains, um, certainly of Batman and the different, the different stories. And, and we talk about, you know, I know that obviously that show is more than 20 years old. But, but we talk about the um, uh, kind of how adult themed that show actually really is and how much psychology is infused in a lot of the different stories. So, so far it's been a lot of fun. That's fantastic. It's, that's a huge project. And, and I think everybody can agree that Batman, the animated series was like the best ever. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's by far, whenever anybody pulls questions about what's your favorite Batman, I'm like animated. I <laughs> <I'm> agree. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if folks are interested in listening, um, one thing they could do is follow us on Twitter. We're at Arkham Sessions on Twitter. On Facebook, we're The Arkham Sessions. 
And then, of course, if um, folks want to find all the, the different episodes, um, I believe we've recorded 11 episodes now, and our next episode is um, about the penguin. And then the following episode, I believe, is Heart of Ice, which is a which. That was a breathtaking yes. episode. Yeah. Wow. So we'll yeah. be talking about um, that episode in a couple weeks. So folks can find all of them also on my website, underthemaskonline.com. And your own personal Twitter feed is what? Um, Arkham Asylum Doc, right? Yes. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Arkham Asylum Doc. Okay. Any last words? Because I've kept you like for a really long time, but <laughs> it's hard, so hard to wrap this up. No, I, it was a great chat. And, you know, of course, um, if you or if anyone has questions about anything we talked about, I'm more than happy to chat about it. Um, I'm certainly on Twitter every day. And uh, this, I mean, I know we covered a lot of topics, uh, probably not as in-depth as we could if we had more time, but I had a lot of fun and I appreciate um, the time that you spent with me. I've, I've loved all of this. This is such a great opportunity for me. And thank you to, to Jill Pantosi, who's our, you know, great mutual friend that yes. helped help put this together and um you know all of you folks that get to go to wondercon you're very lucky please go check out or you know drea's panel because this is going to be a fantastic opportunity if anybody is putting that up on youtube it would be appreciated um so thanks again uh, to uh, you've been listening to dr drea letamendi for those of you if you didn't catch her name in the beginning so uh people can track you down and search you and and whatnot um, you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber and read everything else like the show notes for this episode at amberunmasked.com. So until next time, uh, bat fans, same bat channel <laughs> on iTunes and Stitcher and amberunmasked.com. Cheers. Cheers.